All right, well, if you have your Bibles this morning uh, or on your handy-dandy iPhone, where's Pete? No. Uh, turn to the book of Psalms. Uh, as I mentioned uh, before uh, in the announcements on Friday, uh, as I was thinking about uh, various things that are happening uh, in our country and then was reminded of Sanctity of Life Sunday, um, I decided uh, to call an audible uh, and for the sermon today and instead of being in Matthew chapter 6 and continuing that series, push pause on that and take us uh, into Psalm chapter 139 uh, and celebrate with many around our country the sanctity of human life uh, and call us as a church not only to celebrate life and the creator who gives life, but also uh, to act for that, to act for uh, the good of unborn children, uh, our future unborn children that we might have, but also uh, those in our neighborhoods, our co-workers. Uh, so that's why we find ourselves in Psalm 139 uh, this morning for that purpose. Uh, in his outstanding book, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, author Russell Moore writes this, Christians are to be shaped and formed by the authority of Scripture. And we all, would all say amen, we believe that. We ought to train our own consciences to see how questions facing us and our neighbors now intersect with God's kingdom purposes. In other words, in order to engage our culture most effectively, we as believers must think intentionally about issues such as abortion, uh, such as the sanctity of human life, and let our thoughts be shaped by God's word. And so, as a people... Uh, gospel-centered community on mission. We want to be shaped by the Word of God, and especially shaped by this specific issue this morning, uh, that it would shape our life, doctrine, and mission. And so we open up Psalm 139 and say, God, teach us through this Word how to love and celebrate life, how to speak uh, for life. And so let's read together Psalm 139. Follow along as I read. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light all around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day, darkness and light are alike to you. And then the passages that we're specifically focusing on this morning. For it was you who created my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me, how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I wake up, I... I'm still with you. This morning I have two goals in this sermon. 
to educate and to activate us. To educate us as a church based on God's word, answering the question, what does God say about the unborn? And then to activate us as a church to speak to this issue, informed again by God's word, answering the question, what are we to do with Psalm 139 and the words we read here? But at the outset, I have to acknowledge that there's a sensitivity to this topic of abortion and the unborn. It's difficult in nature for many of us. Statistics inform us that one out of four, every four women have had an abortion. One out of every four women. And if that's true, that means it applies to some of the women here today. Maybe you haven't had an abortion yourself, but maybe... You have heard of a friend, a loved one, who has an abortion. It applies to the women. It also applies to us as men, uh, maybe, who have consented to or even pushed towards abortion or know a brother, uh, know a friend, a co-worker that has done that. And so we might have loved ones. We might have co-workers, neighbors who have gone through this if we haven't ourselves. And so it might be difficult for us to hear this this morning because we might be asking the question, what if? What if I would have done this? What if I would have only helped my brother, my sister? What if I would have only made this decision instead? What if I would have done more to stop it? As one of a brother, one of your brothers in Christ, uh, this weighs heavy on our hearts, my heart, and it should on all of our hearts, to think that we have brothers and sisters in Christ around us who are going through this condemnation of a past abortion uh, of again brothers or sisters loved ones that have made those decisions and this morning as i speak from psalm 139 i don't want to add more condemnation onto onto any of you or to those who might be struggling with past i wouldn't want this sermon to condemn those who have repented so if that's not you maybe it's someone who hears of this or we speak to those who have had an abortion we we don't want to speak in a adding more condemnation if they've repented of that sin and they're seeking to apply the truth of the gospel to the hurt and shame of that decision in the past actually when i was a pastor in north carolina there was one of our members who had a past like that and we encouraged her and that family with the truth of the gospel because while much of what is said this morning is difficult for us to hear We have to be reminded that the cross of Christ is bigger than the sin of abortion. In the cross of Christ, we are provided forgiveness for the past. We're provided grace in the present and hope for the future. Jesus Christ gives us forgiveness for all and any of our sins. Jesus Christ gives us grace for the sorrow. Jesus Christ gives us hope for renewal. And so at the outset this morning, we have to acknowledge that as we dive into these truths from God's word, as we think about how our culture thinks about the unborn, we have to understand that we are all standing on level ground at the foot of the cross. Each one of us sinners, guilty, guilty of the murder of God's son, we being responsible for his death, all responsible for his death, but all offered forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so that being said, let's go to the God who grants forgiveness, grace, and ask him to teach us through his word this morning. Father, this morning, 
we want to look at this issue and specifically this passage and we want you to teach us. It might not be new to many of us, but we still need to hear it. We still need to be instructed by it so that we would speak to this issue in our country. That you are the creator of life and you believe all life is precious. And so, Lord, as we deal with coworkers and neighbors who either have had an abortion or are considering that, may we have the grace that you have. That as you step into the mess of our lives, when we are enemies of you, that we were hating you, you stepped in, and in grace and truth, you loved us and redeemed us. So may we speak with that same grace and truth. So teach us this morning how to do that. Teach us, remind us of how important life is. All of life, whether it's in the womb or towards the end of life, how precious life is because you are the creator of it. Speak to us through your word in your name. Amen. Well, January of 1973 was a busy month for the United States. I don't remember 1973. Some of you might. Uh, I wasn't born then. On January 30th, former presidential aides James McCord and Gordon Liddy were convinced or convicted of conspiracy, burglary, and wiretapping for their roles in the Watergate break-in. Their conviction came just three days after the signing of the Paris Peace Accord, ending the war in Vietnam. On January 22nd of 1973, President Lyndon Johnson died at his Texas ranch, and on that same day, Big George Foreman defeated Smokin' Joe Frazier in the Sunshine Showdown to become the heavyweight champion of the world. Two days earlier, January 20th, President Richard Nixon was inaugurated for his second term in office, five days after offensive action was suspended in Vietnam. On January 14th, the Miami Dolphins completed the only perfect season in NFL history and the only season that they've ever done won that many games. Sorry if anybody's a Dolphin fan. Elvis Presley uh, had a concert televised in Hawaii that was watched by 1.5 billion people. And so it was a busy time. There was a lot going on in January of 1973. But while the entire nation was busy watching history unfold before their very eyes, seven non-elected Supreme Court justices were altering history for the worse. In January of 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court wiped away every state law that had previously protected human beings in the womb, legalizing abortion in all 50 states for virtually any reason at all. It was in what is now known as the landmark case Roe v. Wade, a pregnant single woman, Roe, sued a Dallas County District Attorney Henry Wade to prevent him from enforcing the Texas abortion prohibition law. Though her life was not threatened by her pregnancy and she had no legal basis for an abortion, a, a three-judge district court ruled that Roe did have basis to sue and declared Texas abortion law void for being, quote, vague and, quote, overbroad. The decision was appealed and ended up before the Supreme Court, who handed down its verdict on January 22nd, of 1973, 45 years ago tomorrow. The Supreme Court ruled in a 7-2 decision that those states did have an interest in protecting fetal life. Such interest was not, quote, compelling until the fetus was, quote, viable. 
placing viability at the start of the third trimester. Thus, all state abortion laws that restrained abortion during the first six months of pregnancy were nullified. Third trimester abortions were declared to be legal only if the pregnancy threatened the life or health of the mother. And according to Justice Harry Blackham's majority opinion, a woman's health includes her physical, emotional, psychological, and even familial well-being and should include considerations about a woman's age. All these factors may relate to health, Blackham argued, so as to give the attending physician the room he needs to make his best medical judgment. In other words, if a woman is merely upset about her third trimester pregnancy, causing her a psychological discomfort, her doctor was then able to give uh, consent to an abortion. Well, despite all the legal wranglings that have happened since that time, Really, the abortion law has remained virtually unchanged. And as a result, more than 58 million human beings have lost their lives in the United States alone since 1973. That is nine times the amount killed during the Holocaust. Those statistics are heart-wrenching, but must be heard. It's been estimated that the worldwide there are 42 million abortions each year. 115,000 abortions every day. That is the death toll of 9-11 times 30. Katrina times 62 every single day. In China, there are 13 million abortions a year. In Russia, there are 4.3 abortions for every one live birth. Here in the United States, there are roughly 1.1 million abortions each year. 2,900 babies die from abortion each day in the United States. What's one every 30 seconds? In Wisconsin, in our backyard, there are roughly 6,000 abortions each year. That would figure to be about 15 every single day. Church, we must not ignore the reality of what is happening in abortion clinics across our country, around the world, and even in our backyard. Why? Well, because, as we see in Psalm 139, all human life is created by God in his image and for his glory. And only he has authority to end life as he so chooses. We believe that abortion is the intentional killing of children. And as hard as that is to say, it must be said. You see, abortion is not a political issue. Abortion is about God's glory and his authority over life. Abortion is not fundamentally about Who is in the office, if it's Democrat or Republican, or what rights a woman has? No, abortion is about Jesus, the creator of life. It's about loving what Jesus loves and hating what he hates. It's about defending the vulnerable and protecting the weak. And so we must not ignore what is an affront to Jesus. And here in Psalm 139, we find two simple truths that form a foundation for our conviction regarding the unformed or the formless child. And further, these truths must inform how we speak to the culture around us, how we love and care for our neighbors and our co-workers, how we speak as a church. And these two simple truths are, first of all, an unformed child is, is wonderfully designed and therefore not to be intentionally destroyed. The second truth is an unformed child is to be worshipfully delighted in 
and therefore not to be untimely dismissed. And so first we observe in one, Psalm 139, an unformed child is wonderfully designed. Here in this psalm, David sets forth magnificent transcendence of God in the first 12 verses. Yet for all the height and depth of this psalm, it still remains intensely personal to us. David takes us on a beautiful excursion into the grandeur of God's matchless character. He carefully guides us along in our wonder and amazement of God's perfect knowledge of mankind. Sam Storms writes, David takes great comfort in knowing that God knows him exhaustively. God knows him past, present, and future. And David is strengthened and reassured by the fact that no thought, no desire, no plan or purpose escapes the eye of his heavenly father. This is a glorious celebration of the multifaceted splendor of God and the imminently practical implication that it bears for you and me. So in these first 12 verses, David paints this picture of God's supreme knowledge. You know when I sit down and when I stand. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it. Where can I go to flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon, settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. God's all-encompassing personal knowledge and active presence gives David all the reason he needs to break out in praise in verse 6. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty. I am unable to reach it. And so it's on this backdrop that the psalmist begins to paint this picture and gives us a glimpse into the womb and the wonders of the unformed. In the next four verses, the psalmist describes the wonderful design and development of the human embryo and attributes all of life to the creative power of God. Look at verses 13 to 16. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Notice how the psalmist emphasizes the handiwork of God in these verses. Like a potter behind the wheel, carefully molding and creating and forming his masterpiece, God has cautiously and intentionally formed and created our inward parts, the psalm tells us. Literally, one's kidneys, which in Hebrew thought encompass the most secretive and sensitive locus of a person. You knit me together in my mother's womb, like the care in which your mother or grandmother would have in stitching a scarf or a quilt. So God has great care as he knits each one of us while still in our mother's wombs. David here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is giving us a quick peek into the womb where we see God's creative genius as he weaves together these precious hands. Every individual finger and toe, each ear, each leg. I have been remarkably and wondrously made, David exclaims. He is not perplexed about how he came to be. No, David undoubtedly recognizes it was by the precise design of God. He's not confused, but he's marveling over the special love that was set on him, even in the earliest stages of life. My bones were not hidden from you. Just as God's knowledge extends to the heights of the heavens and the depths of Sheol, so also an unformed child in the womb of his mother is not hidden from God's view. I was made in secret. God's knowledge of the psalmist goes back even before his birth to conception when the Lord created him in the secret of the womb, formed intricately, woven in the depths of the earth. 
Again, the detail in the human body is astonishing and cause for wonder. Each detail crafted by the master designer. He says, your eyes, in verse 16, saw me when I was formless. Once again, he's acknowledging the omniscience of God and his personal attention to the unformed child. He realizes that even before his mother was pregnant, the Lord was already showing his care for him. His personal life began in the womb and God already laid out its course. This psalm is a powerful reminder of the value God sets on us in our lives, even as an embryo. There's special value placed on the unformed child, even at conception, long before an eight-inch journey through that birth canal into the real world. An unformed child's truth truly is wonderfully designed. God speaks to that here in Psalm 139. As many of us have grown up in school learning science, we know the wonders of the human body. How amazing it is that we function the way that we do. And so this truth that we see from God and is proved by science informs us in our conviction that a child is wonderfully designed and therefore not to be intentionally destroyed. You see, there's a pronounced contrast between how God speaks about the human body and how and what language our culture uses. Some of you might recall two and a half years ago that the Central or the Center for Medical Progress released some videos. There's 11 that have been uh, given now that brought to light an utterly gruesome details of Planned Parenthood's abortion business and their selling of aborted babies and their body parts. Those videos further ignited the conversation two and a half years ago, going around in our culture, and actually they still seem to be creating a stir. For those who have not seen any of those videos, here's just a very small glimpse into how our culture talks about the unformed child. Dr. Carolyn Westhoff, who is the senior, senior medical advisor for Planned Parenthood, is seen in one video discussing how certain affiliates are very familiar with the process of providing aborted fetal parts. In the video, she's asking the actor who's posing as a potential buyer about what kind of, and she uses the word tissue, they want. You only do fresh tissue, you don't do frozen, right? She continues saying that they've been working with people who want particular tissues, like you know, quote, they want cardiac, or they want eyes, or they want neural. People want spinal cords, so I mean that sort of thing. Certainly everything we provide is fresh. The 11th video shows an abortion doctor in Austin, Texas, describing a partial birth abortion to terminate living late-term fetuses, which she hopes will yield intact fetal heads for brain harvesting. My aim is usually to get the specimens out pretty intact, she says. And there's horror in each of those statements. You hear the awful language. It's just tissue, eye, spinal cord, specimens. Other terms that are often used by our culture are fetus, clumps of cells, or even unviable, referring to a child that can't live outside the womb. Each term assuming that what is inside the womb is not a human being. Assuming that that fetus, as they say, has no value-giving properties. 
No self-awareness, no rationality, rationality, no ability to feel pain or emotion. Therefore, it's just a clump of cells, just tissue. Each term is an affront, not just to that child, but as we see here in Psalm 139, it's an affront to our creator, the creator of life. So you see, the real question in the debate about abortion is, what is the unborn? The answer that God gives us is that the unborn, unformed child is a wonderfully designed human being in whom God has shown special care. The child is a human being. Even the science of embryology supports this truth. In fact, one of the leading embryology textbooks, entitled The Developing Human, and it's widely used, affirms this, stating, Human development begins at conception. This highly specialized cell marks the beginning of each of us as unique individual. These basic scientific facts have been known for years. And even a a former Planned Parenthood president notes this. This all seems so simple and evident that it is difficult to picture a time when this knowledge wasn't part of the common knowledge of our day. Even a U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee affirms the knowledge that life begins at conception. Physicians, biologists, they write, and other scientists agree that conception marks the beginning of life of a human being, a being that is alive and is a member of the human species. There is an overwhelming agreement on this point in countless medical, biological, and scientific writings, they wrote in 1981. Yet still, we hear that this life In the womb is just a clump of tissue, a clump of cells. Each human being began in the womb at conception and is precious to God from that point until death. Both science and scripture support our conviction that an unformed child is wonderfully designed to bring glory to God, to image, reflect him in this world, and then should therefore not be intentionally destroyed. The second truth that we see here is that an unformed child then is to be worshipfully delighted in. An unformed child should cause us to worship the creator of life. Notice how the psalmist throughout these verses continually worships God for his handiwork. I will praise you. Your works are wondrous, verse 14. The object of David's praise is solely fixed on the creator. As he describes the intricacies of his life prior to birth in the mother's womb. He can't help but worship God for life. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. The reason David responds with such awe about the Lord's thoughts and purposes here in verse 17 is that the Lord has an intimate knowledge and there's detailed activity in his life prior to leaving the mother's womb. He's not exaggerating. Even his own body, there is even in his own body there's unimaginable wealth in the details that come from the mind of God. The details of the unformed child cause David and should cause us to praise God. And many of us have had the opportunity, as we have had children, to have that ultrasound during the pregnancy. And there on that small black and white screen, and now they're maybe brownish <laughs> as they have the 3D, we're able to see the intricate details of our little one. As the doctor takes those measurements, we see the legs, the spine, the head. We see unformed child's growth 
as each of those ultrasounds continue to stack up, and we, we enjoy that. You saw the little heart flutter, or maybe you heard the swish, swish, swish on that Doppler. Undoubtedly, the details of your unformed child cause you to praise God in that moment. They should also, the details of the life in all unformed children, whether it's ours or neighbors or coworkers, should cause us to praise God and give voice to what God thinks about life. Psalm 127, David's son Solomon most likely, having learned from his father the wonder and delight of the unformed, writes, Behold, children are a heritage, a gift, a blessing from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. See, both David and Solomon knew the delight in children, the delight in the unformed child, that it was a precious gift. So they worshipped God because of that gift. An unformed child is to be worshipfully delighted in and therefore not to be untimely dismissed. Again, there's a stark contrast between God's attitude here in Psalm 139 towards this formless child and the attitude our culture has. God delights in children and our culture just dismisses them. This attitude of dismissal is most blatantly seen in reasons most women give for having an abortion. As reported in the journal entitled international family planning perspectives the vast majority of abortions worldwide are not done for medical necessity but just to delay or to do away with a birth the journal states the most commonly reported reason women cite for having an abortion is to postpone or stop childbearing the second most common reason is socioeconomic concerns which includes it's disrupted their education or employment. They have a lack of support from the father, desire to provide schooling for existing children, and poverty, unemployment, and ability to afford additional children. Even abortion clinic workers have acknowledged the elective nature of the abortion. One doctor wrote about, in 1984, in his book, Abortion Practice, uh, wrote this, as a rule, women do not make Decisions on the basis of statistical evaluations and medical advice. But rather, they make the decision on the basis of personal attitudes and necessities. Such factors as lack of desire for parenthood, stability of relationships, educational status, emotional status, or economic status, among others. You see, what our world, how they view children, they view them as just inconvenient, costly and many times a mistake abortion then is just all about my rights my privacy and not at all about the child especially since it's just a clump of tissue now if we're honest at that point when we start hearing this we become a little bit more irate don't we the anger starts to well up and that people would do such a thing to a child but let's not forget that there are two people at the least, directly involved in this abortion, the child and the mother. The truth is that most of these young women, teenagers, sometimes even young girls, and often included are their husbands or boyfriends, are already in the depths of the mess of life. And so this unwanted, inconvenient, costly child to them just adds to the mess of their lives. 
Now that's not an excuse. But we have to understand that our compassion, based on our convictions, must not just reach inside the womb, but also to the womb herself. What would bring this young teenager to this point? What are the pressures that she's feeling? How could we speak to that in our world? This mother, who already has four children and then finds herself pregnant again with a fifth, is thinking about how this will affect her life. And we might just scream out, don't abort, but then we'll walk away and not help at all. Our compassion must not just reach inside, but to the womb herself. We must not get so blinded by the atrocity of abortion that we forget that of all the people involved, not just a life, but lives, plural, at stake. Certainly the life of the unborn child is to be cherished and delighted in, But so should the life of that mother that's carrying that child. So should the life of the boyfriend or the parents urging that girl to go ahead and have the abortion. Since all life matters to God, all life is precious to him, so it should be for us. The solution to their problem is not just to go out and have an abortion. That won't solve all their problems. Jesus will. We see over and again in the Gospels that Jesus is the one that pursues the hurting, pursues those that are in the mess of life, the sinner, and he meets them where they are. He meets them in their hurt. He meets them in the mess of their life. And he offers forgiveness and redemption. You see, the Gospel is the only solution to the problem of abortion. Legislation certainly may help, But ultimately, only Jesus can change hearts and save lives. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with condemnation for past abortion or for not saying enough to those in your family who have considered such things, the good news is that Jesus forgives. He meets you in the mess of your life and he offers forgiveness, grace, and hope. The truth is he offers that for everyone. Whether or not you've been a part of an abortion decision or had an abortion, the good news is that Jesus forgives all of us, both you and me, sinners hurting, running away from him, running to our own destruction. Jesus restores the broken, the hurting. He redeems us to himself. And so if you're here this morning and you haven't turned to him, come to him in repentance and faith, believe And Jesus who offers forgiveness. You see, the gospel is the truth that we need to go out with to those who are thinking about abortion so that they can see the forgiveness and the hope that he gives in life. That yes, there's still messiness in life, and we all have the messiness, don't we, in our lives, but he is there with us. And he meets us in those moments. One Pro-life advocate has stated, fewer women would have abortions if wombs had windows. I think right here in Psalm 139, we have a window into the womb. Here we see that an unformed child is wonderfully designed, so should not be intentionally destroyed. And as we see that, we are to delight in this beautiful creation of a child, worship God, not dismiss this child. See, these are our convictions from God's word. 
So our call to action then is to defend all human life. In the womb, outside of the womb, all the way to the grave. The sad truth is that the church has been silent for way too long on this issue of abortion. Oh, we might have all said that we believe in the sanctity of life. And we've talked about the horrors of abortion privately. But in the culture that we live in, truth is, our culture is much louder than we are as a church. There's more publicity to the voices that say that life in the womb is just tissues and clumps of cells. But God is not silent. God is not passive about life. He's not indifferent about life. And so, neither should we. So in closing, I want to call us as a church to three specific actions based on these truths from God's word. First of all, as we're in the midst of studying the prayer, the Lord's prayer, that we would first of all pray, but pray for courage. Pray that God would give us courage to engage our neighbors and coworkers, engage, engage our city on this issue of abortion. Pray that God would give us all the courage to speak louder than our culture. Pray that God would give us that courage when we're talking to just maybe somebody uh, in, the, in the grocery store and they're talking about life. To not just say about our little children all around us, oh man, it's, it's a struggle with all these kids. But to talk about the preciousness of these children to us. That they're gifts. That God would give us the courage when our coworkers start speaking about what's going on in our culture as it relates to abortion. And that we should have our rights as women to have the courage to speak about the love that God has for life. And that we would speak with conviction. So first of all, pray with courage. Pray for courage. Speak with conviction. That God's word would inform and shape how we speak. That we would let his words be our words. That we would so know Psalm 139 that that just overflows when we're speaking about life. In the womb and out of the womb. And that we would then serve with compassion. But let our love for all human life stir us up into not just words, but deeds. Getting involved with various ministries that would give a voice to the voiceless. Uh, there's organizations out there like 40 Days for Life, uh, Save the Stork, Speaking for the Unborn. And actually later this, uh, this week or even maybe today, I'll send out an email with some resources that will hopefully stir you to get involved with. Uh, these things. Uh, 40 days for life is a wonderful opportunity just to pray for 40 days uh, that God would protect life. They would shut down abortion clinics. Uh, there's other opportunities. Obviously, we're involved with the Elizabeth House, and that's a wonderful opportunity for us to speak to the preciousness of life and to serve young mothers who have decided to keep their children, and we're rejoicing in that with them. So let us pray speak and serve let us be the hands and feet of christ meet the broken right where they are and defend human life from the womb all the way to the grave and so father this morning that's our desire informed by your word what you think about life we want to be your hands and feet so whatever that looks like for each one of us some of us might be able to go uh, and be a part of some, some specific organizations uh, and serve there. But some of us might just be living in a home where our neighbors 
beside us or in front behind us are struggling with what they're terming an unwanted pregnancy. And we might have the opportunity because God has placed us right there on that street with that house to speak for life, to show love, to meet those who are broken and hurting, and to see a child that you have wonderfully created come into this world and maybe even come into our families. And so God, give us a heart for whatever it is that you're doing in our lives about children. Uh, Stir that up within us and stir us to action uh, so that we would not just walk away from this like the man in James does and saying that we're good, forgetting what manner of man we are. But may we be doers of the word, not hearers only. In your name, amen.